Blog Talk Radio. And you're sitting to me, Melissa Cantrell, your host here on Truth Be Told Radio. And we're going to get right into the lesson. Lesson today by John MacArthur, and it is called The Riches of Our Salvation here on Truth Be Told Radio. Nothing new. In fact, you don't need new revelations, and you don't need new visions. You just need to remember the same old, timeless, eternal, divine principles that glorify God, right? And that's what we're committed to sharing. A few years back, while walking on a trail near their home, a California couple spotted an old can that was buried under some moss. Over a thousand gold coins from the 1800s were hidden inside. It was a treasure worth 
literally millions of dollars. It's amazing to think that for years a fortune was buried there and no one knew about it. Well, in a similar way, many Christians live as if they're not aware of the astonishing riches of our salvation, the spiritual wealth that is at our disposal. What are those riches, and how do you know if you're taking advantage of the blessings God's given you? Consider that today on Grace to You Weekend, as John MacArthur begins a study that's helping you see the big picture of your salvation. It's titled, Remembering What Not to Forget. And now here's John MacArthur with the lesson. Turn in your Bible, if you will, with me to Second Peter chapter 1. Look with me at verses 12 to 15 again, and I'll give you the setting for what I hear Peter saying. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and are established in the present truth. Yea, I think it fitting as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath shown me, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. So Peter says, as long as I live, I'm going to tell you to remember and to remember and to remember so that it controls your mind. First of all, remember the reality of your salvation. Remember the reality of your salvation. We saw that last week in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, and for today, I want you to concentrate on the riches of your salvation. Remember not only the reality of it, but the riches of it. Look at verses 3 and 4. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, by which are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, notice at the end of verse 3 an interesting parallel. He has called us to glory and virtue. Now, here we come back to the same concept as we saw in life and godliness. Life and glory and godliness and virtue are parallels. Life is the internal. Glory is the internal. The glory of God and the soul of man, the indwelling presence of God. Godliness on the outside and virtue on the outside are the external. The point is this, that God has given us all we need for the internal and all we need for the external because He has called us to internal glory and external virtue. Created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works. Inside and outside. You hear people talk about saving faith. And if you mean some kind of faith that redeems you but doesn't do anything else for you, there's no such thing. There's only one kind of faith, living faith. It redeems you and it sustains you in a life of response to God. It follows that where there's life, there's godliness. It follows where there's glory, there's virtue. And you have everything you need for that. If your life is not virtuous and godly, it is not the absence of resources. It is the absence of your will. Have you forgotten your position? You know, in Ephesians 1, it says in verse 3, He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly... It's a, a magnanimous statement. Blessed us with all spiritual blessings. In other words, God has given to us all the necessary and all the available, and I'll add another one, all the possible spiritual capacities. And then verse 4 just adds, 
by which are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. People, God has not only given us all we need for now, but He's given us great and precious promises for tomorrow, hasn't He? And He's taken us right out of the corruption of lust, right out of the, of the world, and He's made us, and this statement is enough to just knock you over, a partaker of the divine nature. Now, I'm just telling you, if you're not living on top of things, folks, you are somehow jamming the signals. You're gunking up the channel because the power is there. As I said, I don't think we've even begun to see what God can do when we find ourselves utterly and totally cleansed and His power flowing through us. Just one word there. Verse 4, great and precious promises. The word precious is timia, and it emphasizes unequaled value. There's nothing like them. They are utterly unequaled. And I think it's kind of a wonderful little play on words because back in verse 1 you see the word precious, like precious faith, and that means of equal value. All of our faith is of equal value, and all of our faith of equal value is based upon absolutely unequaled promises. Precious faith based on precious promises. And if you were to go back to 1 Peter, all based on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Hey, have you forgotten the riches of your salvation? Have you forgotten the potential, the promises, what's yours? And you know what? You, you go around the and you meet folks, and their whole perspective of the Christian life is some little set of rules. You know, I met some dear folks who are saved, and they think the Christian life is all these little legalistic rules. Well, you know, you've got to be careful that you don't do this and you don't do that. And they go, all these little things. And that's it. That's spirituality. And then they think they're spiritual because they live up to that standard. And they're sitting there, literally loaded with eternal dynamite, and they don't even know it. And the whole of their Christian perspective is negative rather than positive. And so we are rich in resources. Don't ever forget that. Because it's the fact that you know that, you see, is what releases you to function. You have nothing to fear. Even in direct conflict with Satan, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? And so the resources are there. My desire, like Peter, as long as God gives me life, is to remind you of your salvation, its reality, your salvation, its riches. And lastly, and just briefly, the responsibility of your salvation. You might say, well, you know, uh, the Lord's done it all, and so we just let go and let God. My motto was hold on and let God. Don't let go. Don't do anything in a vacuum. You know, there used to be a group called the Quietists who just believed that you sort of uh, sat around and God did it and you didn't do anything. And they were the sort of passive spiritually. I don't see that. God has done it all. God has given us a like precious faith and God has given us divine power and God has given us exceeding precious promises and God has given us a divine nature and God has taken us out of the corruption of the world and God has done all of this stuff. And then it says, verse 5, watch. And the old authorized says, and beside this, but the literal rendering is, for this very reason, 
because of this, because God has done it all, you do your part. And of course you say, well, if he's done it all, what part have I got? And that's the paradox. That's the paradox that you find all the way through the Scripture. God does it all, and yet we have a part. And he says, for this reason, give all diligence. Man, give everything you've got. We have all we need, yet we have all we can do to add to it. Isn't that interesting? It's a paradox. Our position is one thing. Our practice is another. We have all we need, but we have to apply that. That's the call of God. And you say, well, what is it that we've got in terms of responsibility? Well, look, verse 5. Give all diligence and add to your faith. The first thing and the bottom line in the Christian life is faith, believing God, trusting God. That is the basic ingredient. So you start with that and you add to that, but that's got to be there. You were saved by faith, but it isn't, quote, unquote, just a saving faith. It is a living faith. So the assumption is that you've got it all along. And the bottom line is that you live by faith. That's the only way to live. I hear people say, oh, we're so worried about what's happening in the world. A lot of people say, oh, you know, if things don't change in our country, we're, we're finished. And we, we don't live that way. We don't live by the media. We live by the faith of God. We got into this thing by faith, and we have established that we're going to live by faith, and we will not all of a sudden turn around and try to live by sight. Having begun in the Spirit, are we perfected in the flesh? Listen, we believe God. This whole deal started in the Spirit, and it started by faith, and we're living by faith one day at a time, and we believe that's the way God wants us to live, in utter, absolute dependence on Him. By faith, we believe God to raise up greater testimony. We believe God to raise up a greater ministry, bring more people into His kingdom, send out more to preach and teach and serve. We believe God for the funds and the facilities and whatever it takes to do the work He wants us to do. We believe God for that. And God has always proven Himself faithful to those things He desires to perform. Now, people can get upset about a lot of stuff, but I cannot get upset about things when I know that everything is in the hand of God. I mean, God just controls all the details of every life. Just puts it all together. Faith is such a marvelous thing. And then he says, taking faith as a foundation, verse 5. Watch now. You add virtue. You add virtue. What is the word virtue? It's the word that means excellence of life. It's a very rare word in the Bible, but it's a common word in secular Greek, and it refers to the proper fulfillment of something. The, the best thing that a knife can do is cut, right? And the best thing that a horse can do is run fast. And excellence means that the best thing a Christian can do is to fulfill all that a Christian can be. That's the way the word is used, aretain. It is the excellence of a man to be all that a man can be. And all that a man can be is to be like Christ. And that's the excellence. That's the virtue. So you add to a life of faith the excellence of Christ's likeness. And you add to that, he says, knowledge. Verse 5. And he uses a different word than the epigenosco of earlier, which is the deep knowledge of salvation. This is the gnosis, the practical wisdom you add to your faith excellence of life applied in practical wisdom, goodness, 
on a practical basis. Some people have all the biblical data. They just don't live the life. But knowledge that is true knowledge acts. And in verse 6, it says, to your knowledge, you had self-control. This is to you, to you, Peter says, to remember. You know this. I'm not telling you what you don't know. You know you're to live by faith. You know you're to have a virtuous life, an excellent life, fulfilling all the highest potential of God in man. You know you're to have a wisdom applied, and you know you're to have self-control. Literally, it means to control the passions rather than being controlled by them. To break the will of sin. Self-discipline. We must bring all things into the captivity of Christ. That's what we have to remember. And to the self-control or discipline, add patience. What does he mean? That means to persevere with courage against all odds. Lots of people, you know, start out in a big flurry, and then as soon as they hit some kind of a resistance, they're gone. But when you can take difficulty and go right through it, when you can stand against Satan's attacks and the opposition of the world and the flesh and be courageous, when your star can be the steady, shining star rather than the ephemeral brilliance of a comet, then you've got the idea. That never give in, never give up persistence. Add to that, he says, godliness. And that's a beautiful word, you say, Be'ah. It means reverence or worship, a life of worship, a life of worship. It is not so much the living as it is the attitude toward God. Live a life of worship. A life of awe. As David said, I've set the Lord always before me. You know, I'm saddened about America for that reason. As I travel in the churches, I see so little worship. I see so many programs and so much stuff and so many routines and so little awe of God and so little reverence and so little concept of worship. And sometimes I preach messages on the glory of God and on worship and people say, we never knew that. Someone expressed the fear that Grace Church was becoming too much like a business, too much like an organization with all kinds of policies and programs. And my answer is, if we are, God help us, we will wake up the church in Sardis. We'll be the dead church. And so we must remember to set the Lord before us. We must remember to worship. And then he says to godliness, verse 7, add brotherly kindness. Philadelphia. You know what? The best way to translate it, friendship. Friendship. Be friends. Be affectionate to one another. You know, the, one of the fears I have is that people can just kind of come into our church and sort of sit on the fringes and no relationships develop, and they just, uh, they just leave it at that. They come and watch uh, the preacher and listen to the music and go their way. Don't do that. Don't do that. You add to your faith friendships. You know, there's a whole mystery about discipleship. It's really kind of funny. Churches hear about us and we do discipleship. And they say, you know, they want to know, what is discipleship? Like it's a secret thing. You want to know what it is? Discipleship is nothing more or less than a friendship with a spiritual perspective. That's it. It is where two people are molded together in a deep affection with a spiritual perspective. Their conversation is God, not the weather. That's discipleship. Pouring our lives into each other. Be friends. Build friendships. Remember the importance of that. And don't get your little group over here and keep everybody else out. Build new friendships. Open your hearts. Didn't Jesus say that? By this shall all men know you're my what? Disciples, if you have loved one for another. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten to build friendships? Have you forgotten to extend yourself? You see, your faith is the bottom line. You add to that excellence of life. 
You add to that wisdom, self-discipline, self-control, perseverance, the spirit of worship, friendship, and finally love. The end of verse 7. And by that we mean sacrificial selflessness. Oh, love is selflessness. That's the bottom line. Love is sacrifice for one another. You know, it just grieves me. You hear somebody say, oh, they're doing this and I'm not for it. You're not. That's your problem, to be selfless, sacrificial, to look on the things of others. This summer we had a van verse for our trip. We had a motto for the van. Our verse was Romans 12, in honor preferring one another. With four kids in one van for 90 days, you have to have that verse. Because the hassle over who sits where and gets what. So we had that verse. In honor, preferring one another was our verse, and we enforced that verse. (laughs) That's the way life ought to be, see? That's love. Beloved, have you forgotten the reality of your salvation? Are you thankful? Have you forgotten the riches of your salvation? Are you seeing the power of God expressed? Have you forgotten the responsibility for increased faith? Moral excellence, practical wisdom, self-control, courageous perseverance, God-conscious reverence, friendship, sacrificial, selfless love, then be reminded. Because if you forget, consequences are tragic. That's John MacArthur, president of the Master's University and Seminary. The title of his current study here on Grace to You Weekend, Remembering What Not to Forget. John, you made it clear today that God is the one who saves. He's the author of salvation. But at the end of your lesson, you also talked about the responsibility that belongs to the believer, the the need for all followers of Christ to cultivate godliness. And with all of that said, I have a simple personal question. How do you cultivate those godly qualities? How does John MacArthur, or really any believer, develop virtues like faith and knowledge and self-control? Well, look, let's, let's start by saying I can't develop those in the flesh, but that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, initially, who gave life to my dead soul. It's the Holy Spirit who gave light to my darkened mind. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerated me and awakened me to the truth and gave me the knowledge of the gospel and granted me faith to believe. And And self-control is, is part of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. The Holy Spirit does His work by illuminating the Scripture. That is why you have those parallels in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, parallel to Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Being filled with the Spirit simply means being under the control of the Holy Spirit, which also means letting the Word of Christ, that is the revelation of Christ that has come by the Holy Spirit, fill and control your life. Hmm. So the key to, to godliness in your life is is not, not legalism. It's not sort of a cranking up your self-discipline it's it's not some kind of uh, thing you learn to do um, in, in just your own human strength. Your flesh will produce certain things, but what your flesh will produce uh, is, is all bad, mm. because the flesh lusts against the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Galatians. 
So whatever's good comes from the Holy Spirit. So you need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to walk by the Spirit, as he says in Galatians 5, which means that you walk in consistent obedience to the revealed Word of the Spirit, which is the Scripture. That's critical. And that leads me to say, again, and we've mentioned this before, how to study your Bible is the key issue in your life. It isn't enough to have a Bible, to read a Bible. You need to understand what it means by what it says, because the meaning is the revelation. So we would like to send you a free booklet if you've never contacted us before. Do it today. Uh, Call us, email, write, uh, whatever means you want to use, and ask for the free booklet, How to Study Your Bible. The Bible contains everything you need to know about this life, everything that God wants to grant you by way of understanding Him and His promises is available in the Word of God, but you've got to understand what it means by what it says. So studying the Bible should be the most fundamental practice for every believer. This uh, booklet will tell you how to read the Bible, how to interpret what you read, how to close the gaps to understanding the Bible. It's a tremendously simple resource that'll get you going in the direction of knowing what the Word of God means. All you have to do is ask. For any who've never contacted us before, if you're a first-timer, get a hold of us today and ask for the free booklet, How to Study Your Bible. And you need to get this book. And again, we'll send How to Study Your Bible to you for free if you've never contacted us before. Get in touch with us today. If you prefer regular mail, send your request along with your name and address to Grace to You Weekend, Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412. Or email your request to letters at gty.org. Or you can also call us toll-free at 800-55-GRACE. Or go to our website, gty.org. This is an especially helpful resource for new believers. If you're a new believer, it will show you clearly what effective Bible study looks like. And again, it's our gift to you if you've never contacted us before. Just let us know that you want John's booklet, How to Study Your Bible. Call our toll-free number, 855-GRACE, or get this offer at the website, gty.org. That's gty.org. And now for John MacArthur and the Grace to You staff, I'm Phil Johnson. Remember, you can watch Grace to You television Sundays on DirecTV channel 378. And then tune in for our next broadcast. John's going to show you why, if you're a Christian, no trial or tragedy in this life can take away the joy that's ahead of you. Remembering what not to forget, that's his study, and it continues next week with another 30 minutes of unleashing God's truth one verse at a time on Grace to You Weekend. I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you I really don't know where to start 
start at the beginning Cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning And this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity Ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously Loving one another endlessly Billions, billions years ago Outside of what we know it's time Nobody else was there to know But Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was As long ago as that was You have not changed, Lord Featuring Monel, 
and Shine spelled S H A I L I N N E. And you can find them on lampmode.com, L A M P M O D dot C O, lampmode.com. And next we got Go Fish with Walk with God here on Trippy Toll Radio.
Appendix and tonsils. Who needs them? This is Ken Ham, co-author of the book on Noah's flood called A Flood of Evidence. Years ago, doctors and researchers considered dozens of human organs to be useless evolutionary leftovers. But now we know better. These structures have functions. Yet many of them still keep showing up in textbooks of so-called useless organs. For example, you might find your appendix and tonsils on that list. Now, it's true you can live fine without these organs, but they do have important functions. Your tonsils help catch infections before they invade your body, keeping you healthy. And your appendix is a so-called safe house for good bacteria. They can repopulate your gut after an illness. Your body isn't full of leftovers. It's fearfully and wonderfully made. Discover more answers to evolutionary arguments when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and view hundreds of resources and much more on our website at AnswersRadio.com. Solid. Rock, I 
Useless organs? A useless argument. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing God's Word. Have you ever heard the claim that your body is full of useless structures left over from our supposed evolutionary past? This ridiculous claim has been debunked over and over. But you know, the myth still persists, and news articles still publish lists of these supposed organs. Sometimes our outer ear muscles are included. That's because we can't swivel them like some animals can. It's assumed they're left over from our supposed evolutionary past. But evidence suggests they're important for causing us to reflexively turn our eyes in the direction of a sudden sound. Our bodies, though marred by the curse, aren't full of leftovers. It's because we did not evolve. Plan your family's visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com or listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
Goldfish with before throwing guys, and you can find them on GoFishGuys.com. G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S dot C-O-M. GoFishGuys.com. And next, answers and just. Fearfully and wonderfully made. This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's word. From an evolutionary starting point, we'd expect our bodies to be full of leftovers from the past. But starting with God's word, we know our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. They're marred by the curse, of course, but we wouldn't expect to find dozens of useless structures. And we don't. One example of the so-called useless structure is the palmaris longus muscle. Now, this muscle stretches from your arm to your palm. It helps you flex your wrist. But about 15% of people don't have one, and they get along just fine. So is this muscle useless? Well, not at all. It actually gives better grip strength, so while you're fine without it, you're better off with it. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit AnswersRadio.com and discover answers to evolutionary arguments at AnswersRadio.com.
Tailbone is not a tail. This is Ken Ham heading up the ministry that built a 510 foot long Noah's Ark. Have you ever fallen down and slammed your tailbone? It can really hurt. You can't sit, stand or lie comfortably for a while. That's because many of your important muscles are anchored to your tailbone. So when you fall on it, those muscles get sore. But the tailbone or coccyx is often called a useless organ. Even the name tailbone suggests a time in our supposed evolutionary past when we had tails. But as a fall will demonstrate, the tailbone isn't useless. Not only do your muscles attach to the tailbone, they also form a net. It anchors your internal organs in place. The idea of useless organs is a useless idea that needs to be thrown away. 
Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit AnswersRadio.com and discover answers to evolutionary arguments at AnswersRadio.com. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood.
when everyone is talking about the love of God and God loves me just as I am, how would you respond? The kingdom of God is not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I think there are few things more dangerous than preachers out there preaching that God loves everybody unconditionally. Because the message that is heard by the people who hear that is, there are no conditions. I can continue to live just as I'm living in full rebellion against God. And I have nothing to worry about because there aren't any conditions that I have to meet. God loves me unconditionally. I don't have to repent. I don't have to come to Jesus. I don't have to leave my life of sin. Uh, no conditions, no attached. God loves me just the way I am. He's glad that I turned out so nicely and so on. But there is a sense. I've written a book on the love of God where I talk about the three ways in which theologians speak about the love of God. God's love of benevolence where God has a good will towards everybody, believers and non-believers. Beneficent love of God. God gives benefits to people, whether they're believers or not believers. The rain falls on the just as well as on the unjust. But the most important consideration is the love of complacency, not the love of smugness. But what is meant by the love of complacency is the filial love that God has for the redeemed. And that love is directed first to Christ and then to all who are in Christ, our elder brother. And that salvific love is not something that God has for everybody unconditionally. And sometimes we close our eyes to what the Bible says frequently about God's posture towards the impenitent. God, the Bible tells us, uphors the wicked. That's strong language. God uphors the the wicked who are impenitent. And then people say, well, God loves the sinner. He just hates the sin. But he doesn't send the sin to hell. He sends the sinner there. And so this is very dangerous stuff when we people, God loves you unconditionally. There are many words in the Greek language to define love. It's kind of a big, sloppy, messy term in the English language. It can be, I love a puppy, I love my wife, I love my God. In the Bible, it's far more specific. Did you hear the type of love that God has for his children? The ones who have been adopted no longer is their father, Satan, but their father is God. It is a filial, it is a family love. That is why we hear God called the Father. His relationship with the Son. God didn't have a baby, but it's, it's the configuration of the Trinity that best describes their relationship. It is intimate, it is close, it is warm, it is wonderful. And that is the love that God has for you if you are in Christ. God loves you as much as he loves his son. Hold the phone, Henrietta. How does that work? It is because you are in Christ. God sees you as the righteous one because of Christ, and he loves you because he loves the son. Not just providing some goodies here and there, not maybe just coming to the rescue on occasion, 
but you are his or her beloved child if you are in Christ. President of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. Now, all this week, we've looked at the claim that our bodies are full of useless evolutionary leftovers. We've seen this argument is, well, useless. All of the so-called useless structures have been shown to have a function. As our last example, we'll look at goosebumps. Now, these bumps form when tiny muscles contract, pulling the hair upright. In furry mammals, this helps increase their fur's insulation. 
But since it doesn't do that for us, some people say goosebumps are useless. But this muscle action creates extra heat and draws oil to our skin as a moisturizer. They also heighten our sensitivity in a threatening situation. Since we didn't evolve, there aren't useless structures. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. It was the owl that God gave me. This is Wretched Radio. Gotta make a correction. There was an error on Wretched Radio. That's right. There was no. an error. Not no, mine. I don't believe it. Blame the Al. You see, the other morning, list. was having a conversation with Al. Some of you know Al. He is very, very, very nice. What I'm trying to say is he's a nice guy. Nevertheless, he was sharing a story with me about forgiveness. How it is, it truly can be an act of the will that you have to discipline yourself to have the trajectory of forgiveness, no matter what people do to you. Now, we're not talking about safety issues. We're not causing about physical harm. From that, you call the police and run, or run and call the police, whichever seems to fit the situation best. Not, not talking about that. Nevertheless, when people hurt us in any way, shape, or form, my attitude should be one of, at the very least, desiring forgiveness. Now, there are some people would say you don't really grant forgiveness. That transaction doesn't take place until the person repents. And, and I wouldn't get into an argument over that because I think the heart issue is the same. My attitude is I want to forgive. This is my, I want to be forgiving. Why? Because that's God's heart. That's God's desire. That's God's nature. In fact, to demonstrate that, yeah, let me grab this ancient, heavy NLT Bible. That's right, the NLT Bible. And take you to Second Chronicles. This is a verse that gets used a lot by Americans, sometimes politicians, sometimes activists. This is regarding the dedication of the temple. And this was uh, Second Chron- no, First Chronicles 7. Wait a minute. Are they saying the temple wasn't dedicated, that it wasn't true to its mission, that it didn't stand by its morals? That's exactly what I'm saying. No, it's Second Chronicles 7. All right, so here's, here's the context. We need to, we've, we've heard this verse before. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Come on, America! Do that, and God will heal our land from really bad ideologies, from bad political movements, from anything that's really getting up our nose, as reported on Fox News these days. That's kind of how that verse gets used. But we've got to remember context, context, context. We're studying this verse just this morning in preparation for Herman Who 2. Herman Who 2 will be coming out this fall. It's going to be a rather lengthy You can edit as you see fit. Sunday school curriculum, individual study curriculum to know how to interpret Bible verses rightly. And I think that right away, one of the big rules of hermeneutics, context, 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 helps us with understanding this verse. So Solomon, I'm going back just to verse 11. Solomon finished building the temple as well as the royal palace. 
He completed everything he had planned to do. One night, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. Now, this is, this is important because, remember, in the original language, we didn't have verse breaks. This is verse 13. It's related directly to verse 14. I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls, or I might command locusts to devour your crops, or I might send plagues among you. Then, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'm going to do two things. Forgive their sins, heal their land. From what? The drought, the locusts, the pestilence. Period. Not from the Democratic Party. God was speaking to Solomon about whom? The Jewish people. Uh, and I believe the Mosaic Covenant is in view here. Deuteronomy 28, God promises if you behave, just keep the covenant, you're going to live in a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to bless you like nobody's business. But if you don't, I'm going to whack you. But when you repent, I'll heal, heal your land. Maybe part of the Abrahamic Covenant in view there. What do we learn from this? We learn a ton from this verse. It's not for America. It's not for a rally outside of the state capitol. This is, this is not a promise that if a lot of Republicans will pray, the Democratic Party will be defeated. No. This is a promise from God to those people at that time, that if you fail in your promise to keep the Mosaic Covenant I will punish you as I promised, but I will relent if you repent. This is helpful because there are some verses in the Bible that's where God is, I'm going to whack those people. But they repent, and he, quote, changes his mind, an anthropomorphic term that we can get. He didn't change his mind like, I didn't know they were going to repent. Nah, all right, I'm not so mad anymore. No. This verse actually describes God's character and nature. He's a, he's a forgiving God. He's a relenting God if we will respond in repentance. And so when we see those verses where God promises, doesn't because there was repentance, it doesn't mean that God changed his mind like he didn't know stuff, that he isn't good in keeping his promises. No, this is the big promise. Uh, I'll, I'll punish you, Jews, if you don't behave, but I'll relent when you repent. And the same thing actually applies to us. Now, remember, we're not punished for our sins. Jesus was punished for our sins. But God disciplines us. But God won't need to discipline us if we repent from our sins, because that's what he's desiring from us, holiness and obedience. Now, that was all just kind of an aside to the point of God being a forgiving God. If my people, my, my people hear that? My people. Not, not those people. My, my people who are called by my name. They'll repent. Pray and seek my face. Turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven and forgive. Do you hear the desire for God to forgive? God wants to forgive. He loves to forgive. Remember, God gets glory from sending people to hell, but it's a small glory. It's not a, it's not, it brings him glory, but it's 
if you will, to use the vernacular of somebody, maybe from the 1950s, it's no great shakes for God to send somebody to hell. He gets glory, but it's small glory. Instead, his desire is to see sinners saved. That is his preference. That is his, that is his choice. I've, I like saving people more than sending. He has no delight in the death of the wicked. He's a forgiving God, knowing that is the face of God, that his trajectory is toward forgiveness. You've been forgiven by that, God. And he says, forgive the way that you have been forgiven. Therefore, my trajectory, my desire is to always be forgiving. Now, whether you hold the position somebody has to repent or not, up to you. Shouldn't divide the church. But shouldn't our heart be the same attitude? Shouldn't we be wanting to desire to to forgive and forgive quickly? And so Al and I were chatting about that. And he said, Dolly Madison was quoted as saying, after being kind to people who had slighted her, don't you remember? And she said, I, I distinctly remember forgetting that. Al told me it was Dolly Madison. Clara Barton. <laughs> yes, it was pretty close. She was the Red Cross, founder and president of the Red Cross, Clara Barton. She had been, she'd been approached by a friend of a, of, a, of a wrong done to her some years earlier. Don't you remember, asked her friend? No, I distinctly remember forgetting that. Does that mean that you never actually remember it? The answer is no. When, when God uses the term that he takes our sins and throws them into the sea of forgetfulness, it, he doesn't get a brain swipe. He doesn't lose his omniscience. Oh, I forgot that God was such a lout before I say, oh, yeah, enough. <laughs> really? I'd forgotten. That's ridiculous. Of course he remembers it, but what he doesn't do is dredge it up. He doesn't pull it up and throw it in your face. He doesn't use it as a cudgel to get you to conform. He motivates us by his kindness. God forgived, forgives quickly, and, and, and we should too. And there's times that we need to say, I am not going to harbor this grudge. I'm not going to violate 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to hope all things. I'm going to have a short list. I am not going to hold grudges. I am not going to keep record of wrongs. I'm going to, if you will, forget it. No, doesn't mean that you don't actually remember it. doesn't mean you don't learn lessons from it, but you're not bruised by it. You're not scalding from it. And you're not desiring to use it to retaliate at the first golden opportunity that you have. Why? What is our motivation? Because you and I, big sinners, have been forgiven by the God who loves to see his people repent because he loves to forgive us, and he has in Christ, and that's what should motivate us. This is Wretched Radio. Ted, that was from Wretched Radio, and you can find out more down at wretched.org, that's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot O-R-G, wretched.org. I guess um, me and Melissa Cantrell is here on Truth Be Told Radio. Our website is truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com, and 
and that's called Starling Mysteries. Next we got Shout In also, but this is featuring Beautiful Eulogy, and this is the song Supreme here on Trippy Radio. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to screw you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group. Christ Christ put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose? Partly to fetch hats from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. Jesus Peter was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater and Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ Supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, put the gate into prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and it's bright in the might, and a dominant mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the lost, and he found low. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a trick hold on him. Fight for the rope, but open in. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the N. That's what we hoping in. Riffing on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was bought with a price. We gotta hope they won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one. Intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence. Prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon. You see the fiber of cosmology. The abba of astronomy. He's potter. We are pottery. It's shocking. Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy he's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly you ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent it's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment study the development from old to new testament you'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age it's relevant crisis on its center stage forget religious sentiments the center on man but something less is what you're settling he is the most excellent exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance the sinners that Separated and segregated that severed the relations between man and his maker and placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life, death, and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve and the garden of Eden and from the law. So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. <laughs>
love to tell the story It will be my theme and glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and His love
went wrong at one time So much pressure fell on me I thought I was gonna lose my mind But I know you wanna see If I will hold on through these trials But I need you to lift this load Cause I can't take it no more Take a push out the stuff I see so hard to dance I just wanna praise you I just wanna praise you
What does Job think about the afterlife? Job 19, 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. In my flesh. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, resurrection. I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. That's really clear. Try to remember Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives if you want to do it like the hymn or the King James Version, I know it, that my Redeemer liveth. I maybe had too many ethics on there. But the point is, Job 19, I'll do these in order. Don't forget, Jesus settled this score about the afterlife. That little debate, Pharisees, Sadducees who didn't believe in afterlife, what did he say? That God is, that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After they were dead. Why? Because they were with him was the point of Jesus. Isaiah 26:19. Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. You'd think we were reading First or Second Thessalonians. That's Isaiah 26:19. Just needed to Google it, Ben. Daniel 12, 1 through 3. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress like you've never seen, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, this, this, this is not Revelation, this is Daniel, Old Testament, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, dead people, will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame, an everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 1 through 3. And read it in Hebrew if you'd like. Some will be delivered to eternal life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are, who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's a great verse to encourage you to evangelize. That God loves your efforts to try to save people through the preaching of the word. Psalm 49, Walter Kaiser talking about it, saying there's a contrast in Psalm 49 between the lives of the wicked and the ends of the lives of the righteous. The wicked are like beasts that perish without any hope that they should live on forever. However... The righteous have the triumphant expectation that, quote, God will redeem them from the grave. He will surely take them to himself. This is all Psalm 49. The idea is the same as Genesis 5.24. God will snatch, take, or receive us to himself when we die. So there's your Torah verse, Genesis 5. Once again, Ken Ham appears to be correct. Our answers are in Genesis God will snatch, take, or receive us to himself when we die. These New Testament concepts, while they were certainly more fully developed, after all, our Bible is a progressive revelation. It's not a trajectory where we get to keep going, but instead it gets more and more detailed as time passes, especially as we get into the New Covenant era. Here's now all the things that you need to learn. You're going to be snatched up. You're, you're going to have an eternal body. 
You're going to be resurrected. Whatever your eschatology is, we all agree on that. You're going to be resurrected. You're going to have an eternal body. We're going to be we're physical. We're spirit and body. We're both spirit, soul, interchangeable words, and body. And we're not complete until we've got both together. And we will. First Corinthians 15. In everlasting life, we will have an everlasting body. So these terms, these are not newly introduced in the New Testament. They were in the Old Testament, and they simply built on them and revealed more because the Bible is a progressive revelation. Psalm 73, 23 through 25, similar contrast between the wicked and righteousness. There's faith that reaches beyond this life, and the psalmist says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. That does Ben reject the Psalms? Was this Greek thought? No, this is biblical thought. Daniel 12, Psalm 73, Psalm 49, Psalm 21. Surely you have granted him eternal blessings. 1 Samuel 28. We see the witch of Endor. What's that about? Something's going on in everlasting life. Consider Job 14. This is conscious life after death. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Thou also dost open thine eyes on him and bring him into judgment with thyself. It is appointed unto man once to die than judgment. Is that just Hebrews? No, that's Job 14. These concepts, all of the concerts, concepts of everlasting life, eschatology, all in the Old Testament. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you've set and cannot pass. Thy gate, turn thy gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. So Job 4, he goes on in Job 14, 1 through 15, for there is hope when it is cut down that it will sprout again. This is all about everlasting life. So, Ben, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much you're studying the Bible when you make statements like this. The idea of the afterlife is, uh, is a pretty modern invention in Judaism. Yeah. It, really, it really only crops up, historically speaking, a little bit in the prophets, and it's usually the late prophets. Um, not really. Daniel? Isaiah? The Psalms? And it's, and it's really maybe as a response to early Christianity or, or right. Greek thought. So, yeah, in the, in the Bible itself, there's no reference. In the Torah, there's no right. reference. To the well, except for the references that we cited, Genesis 5, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus interpreted that for us. He is presently, even though they are dead. What did Moses do when he died? Went to be with the Lord. Just Moses? No. So Ben Shapiro, it's true that Jewish thought on the afterlife, no doubt, has been influenced by Christendom, but they've simply stolen the idea, lifted the ideas, gained more understanding. But those ideas in their nascent form, they are still in the Old Testament. If there is a God, which I believe, uh, who exists outside of time and space, and that what animates me is that I'm made in the image of God, and that what animates my capacity is that I'm made in the image of God, that I reunify with God. That basically, there's a, the, the traditional Jewish take on this has been that there's a cleansing process. Judaism doesn't believe in eternal hell. So it's instead this idea that there's a cleansing process for... Um, 
Except for Sha'ol. Your, for your soul, the part that you got from God, that spark of life that you got from God, you schmutz it, it up while you're alive, <laughs> and now there's a cleansing process, and then and that's what hell is, sort of. Uh, it's, and how does that get cleansed? And you are reunited with God, and you have greater understanding. Uh, the idea know, of ben, you being a distinct personage ben, outside of know, my body, I, know I think, is a difficult one. How does that cleansing take place? This is the same problem Islam has. If God just goes, cleansed, or you work it off, first of all, you're working it off, cannot appease God, because you're not God. And so your sacrifice, your works, whatever it is, are not pleasing to God. Furthermore, anything good that we do are offered from filthy hands and are simply not acceptable. Allah, if he just forgives sins, like some Muslims teach, is not just. He is not all righteous because he's willing to overlook transgression. So Ben Shapiro quickly tossing up, you know, there's this little purging process, which sounds more like purgatory than heaven or hell. Totally confused about how our sins are forgiven. This is Wretched Radio. That was from Richard Radio and Richard dot org. You can see it W R E T C H E D dot O R G Richard dot org. And that's it for our show. We're gonna go out with the Yancy and Friends and the VR ability. Bye for now. <laughs>